Hello, everyone, and welcome to Live Through Jesus with Courtney Gilmore. On this episode, Moses and Aaron go to the children of Israel and tell them that God has heard their cries and they have come to deliver them from the oppression of the Egyptians. How God treats his children and how he treats others that are in opposition towards him. That's going to be our focus today. This is the end of Exodus 4, Lesson 5 of the Exodus Study. Now, just as a quick side note, I'll be reading all the scripture references for you, so you're free to just sit back, listen, and absorb, or you can grab your Bible and read along. Most of the time, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but if I switch, I'll let you know. At the beginning of each episode, I'll introduce the title, so if you want the entire study in writing, you can go to livethroughjesus.com and buy it for under $5. Each one will cover two to three months worth of episodes, and once you buy, then it'll be immediately available for download. In addition to a little extra studying, it also allows you the benefit of some charts and keyword definitions, but it isn't necessary. Okay, so let's get started. Before we completely get started, again, I'm going to tell you that I do not have the written study completed. If you guys would like the study to go along with this podcast, then just send me an email and I will email you directly for free the lessons that we've done so far and the upcoming one so that you will be able to follow along whenever you're going through this podcast. I just am swamped right now and it is difficult for me to get much more than a lesson or two ahead right now. So email me if you want those. Otherwise, hopefully I will be completely finished soon and you can purchase that. Now, the last two episodes, we've been talking about how God called Moses and told him to go to Egypt and deliver the children of Israel from the oppression there. And at first, Moses asked, what if they don't believe that I know you? Who do I tell them that you are? So we spent one whole lesson talking about who God is. And then the next lesson, Moses was like, okay, so that's who you are. But I don't think that I am who you think I am. I don't think that I am the one for this job. And so we spent that entire lesson discussing how God knows the people that he calls. And if he calls us, then he either has already created us to be exactly how he wants us to be for that calling, or he will equip us to do that thing. So if you miss those episodes, you're going to want to go back and listen to them because it's crucial for us to understand who God is so that we can understand who we are in him. Now, Moses has decided to go and this lesson is going to be his journey there and the initial conversation with the Israelites. So let's go ahead and read in Exodus 4, 18 through 21. It says, So Moses went and returned to Pharaoh, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brothers who are in Egypt and seek whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men that sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. 
So Moses has decided to obey God, thankfully, and go to Egypt. And he goes and tells his father-in-law Jethro, and he gives his blessing. So he, his wife, and his two sons set out for Egypt. And before they leave, God tells him, take the staff that I told you to perform the miracles with and make sure that you perform the miracles that I told you to in front of Pharaoh. But I want to remind you that these miracles alone will not compel him to let the people go. Now, I want to read you Exodus 3, 19 and 20, because God has already told him this. He says, but I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not unless he is compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I have in my midst. And after that, he will let you go. So God is telling him, make sure that you do all of these miracles. But I want you to know that he won't let you go with those miracles alone. It's going to take a mighty hand to compel him to let y'all leave Egypt. But notice how here he says that God will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. And at first glance, it appears that Pharaoh is initially refusing because God hardened his heart. And so that makes us wonder, why would God harden his heart, seemingly making him not let the people go, and then punish him for it? But as we continue to read, the story unfolds a little different than that. So I want to address that right up front in case this presents an issue with you as it did for me. God does harden Pharaoh's heart, but he does not harden his heart initially. He knows the end result, and so he's expressing that to Moses from the very beginning so that Moses is prepared for a progressive battle. And so we're going to continue to talk about this topic of God hardening his heart and his heart already being hard all through the rest of this study. But I wanted again to address it up front a little bit. So we already know that Pharaoh's heart is already hard towards the Israelites because if it was not, then he would not be enslaving them against their will. There would be no oppression for God to free them from if his heart was not already hard towards them. So Pharaoh's heart is hard of his own accord from the very beginning. We know that already. Then as we continue to read, we will see further how he continues to harden his own heart throughout the miraculous signs and throughout the first five plagues that God sends on him. It isn't until the sixth plague that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart himself. And by this point, Pharaoh's already placed himself as an enemy of God and his people, right? He's already shown that his heart is hard towards them and he is in opposition to God and God's people. And he's never going to worship or serve God. So God's not causing him to be in opposition towards him. That's already of his own doing. It's just that God uses his enemy, who's already presented himself as his enemy, to reveal a mightier power than the miracles and the first plagues alone would have revealed. That's why God hardens his heart as it gets a little further along, because God wants the departure to reveal his vast and unmatched power, you know, the kind that comes only from an almighty God. And so as the time goes on and Pharaoh has already hardened his own heart and put himself in opposition to the Lord, God just makes his heart a little harder there towards the end so that whenever they leave, this shows his glory on full display. 
So God only hardens his heart after he's hardened his own heart. God does not cause him to sin or have a hard heart towards him or his people. He does that on his own. I want you to listen to James 1, 13 through 14. It says, Let no one say when he's tempted that I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So God is not tempting him to sin. God is not tempting him to do evil. He is doing evil because he's been drawn away by his own selfish desires and his own evil heart already. He's sinning of his own accord. God only uses his enemy to reveal a mighty power in himself to reveal his own glory. But he's not creating it. Pharaoh's already done that for himself, okay? I know this is kind of a hard teaching, and that's why we go elsewhere in the Bible, because in the New Testament, there's a place where someone comes to Jesus and says, hey, this is a hard teaching. And Jesus says, I know, and a lot of people have fallen away because of these types of things. Are you going to do the same thing? And they said, well, no, where would we go? Who else would we go to? And so sometimes there are hard teachings. The Bible tells us that there will be. But whenever we are confused, instead of falling away and saying, I don't like that teaching, it's too hard. What we do is we go to God for the answers. We go to his word. We go to the Bible and we find out how to reconcile what we're not understanding because it's not a fault of God. It's a fault of our own if we're in confusion. And so instead of leaving because it's a hard teaching, we are like the disciples. It's where else would we go to find the answers to understand other than back to you? So that's why we read that James verse so that we can remind ourselves that if it seems as though God's causing him to sin, that can't be the case. So there has to be something else going on, okay? If you still have questions about this, please email me because I do understand it's a hard teaching. Email me, we'll get some more verses, we'll talk through some things. So we're gonna move on. Let's read 22 and 23 of chapter four. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn, So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your firstborn son. Again, God is revealing to Moses how deep this is going to get, how far this is going to have to go before he's compelled to let the people go. Now, we're going to talk about this part about him killing Pharaoh's firstborn son at the end of this message. We're going to focus in on that part. But right now, for the sake of this moment, all we're going to talk about is the part where he says, Israel is my firstborn son. Why does he call the entire nation of Israel his firstborn? The reason is because he doesn't have any other children. His children, those that follow him, those that call him father and Lord and God, are the nation of Israel. They're his chosen first people. And they are his children until Jesus comes and this chosen nation rejects Jesus. And then God adopts the Gentiles as his own children. So these two words, the Jews are his chosen people. These are the descendants of Abraham, the 12 tribes of Israel, the Israelites, the Hebrews. These are the people that we're talking about. They're his chosen people. 
but they reject Jesus as the Messiah. And so after that, God extends his salvation, his fatherhood to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are just the rest of the people on earth, those that don't already know him. And these people are adopted into the family of God as they accept Jesus as the Savior because he sent the Savior, Jesus, to the Jews, but they didn't accept him. And so he says, okay, I'm not going to just be the father of those that don't even accept my son. I'm going to be the father of those that accept my son as their savior. And so Jesus reveals God to the people and they believe in him. And now today, anyone that believes in Jesus as their Lord and savior is considered a child of God. We're all granted that privilege, not just those that are born of the line of Abraham. And so if you have the study, there are several verses that show when this happened and why it happened. God had given this charge to Peter telling him, the Jews rejected me. And so now I want you to go preach the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. So there's several verses that back that up, but we're not going to read those. They're just verses to refer to. Okay, so like I said, we're not going to talk about him killing his son yet. So we're going to move on and read 24 through 26. This is a strange encounter. I'm just going to tell you it's strange. It's because we don't live this way now. But we're not going to focus on the strangeness of it. It has a point and the point is not confusing. We can understand it. So it says, It came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him, Moses. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. He let Moses go. God did. And then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. So again, super strange encounter, but apparently God has appeared to them and Zipporah is aware of his presence and she knows exactly why he's there. And so God is in the process of using Moses to fulfill his Abrahamic covenant. And God's part of the covenant was that he was calling him. He was going to make him a blessing to all the nations. He was going to make his name great. He was going to multiply his family and he was going to give the promised land to his family members. And God is in the process of fulfilling that part of his bargain right at this very moment by using Moses. But Moses has not fulfilled his portion of the bargain, which is just to circumcise his sons. God tells them he is their God and they are his people. Will his people all circumcise themselves to set themselves apart from the rest of the nations as the ones that belong to God? And Moses hasn't done this yet with his son. And so his wife quickly redeems the situation and circumcises their son and then throws the foreskin at Moses' feet and is like, here, I did it for you, basically. And this was necessary because if God was going to act as their God and fulfill his covenant by bringing them into the promised land, then Moses had to act as his people and do the things that God had asked him to do, which was circumcise his son. If you're going to be set apart to serve God, you need to set yourself apart. And so God is making sure that that's done. Okay, so again, that was strange, but we get the premise of it. And we're going to move on, read the rest of this chapter, beginning in verse 27. It says, And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. 
So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of the children of Israel together. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. And he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and he had looked on their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So we find here that God not only commands Moses, but he commanded Aaron and Aaron obeyed. And once Moses told him everything, then Aaron was willing to go with him and speak on behalf of Moses to the people. And just as the Lord had said, the people did believe them and they were thankful. They were so glad that God had seen them and that he was ready to free them that they bowed their heads and worshiped God. And so this shows their submission to him and their praise towards him. It was an answer of years worth of prayers. Remember, Moses is 80 years old at this time. And when Moses was born, they were killing all of the newborn sons to suppress the Israelites. And so it's been at least 80 years that that's been going on. And they were oppressed before that. So this has been years worth of prayers that these people have been praying that are now being answered as God is sending Moses to be their deliverer. And then, you know, Moses was rejected 40 years before that by the Hebrews, and now he's being welcomed. And so that should have given Moses lots of confidence because the people are welcoming him now when they weren't before. And everything that God told him was going to happen has happened. So he should have confidence in himself and in God and be more able to trust God and all that he had already told him in the land of Midian. And we'll find out next week if that's the case, if this does give Moses confidence. But I want us just to think about ourselves for one moment and let this remind us that when God answers our prayers, we need to allow it to give us confidence and grow our faith in him. Because once we know he can do one thing, then it gives us confidence that he can do another thing. And so every time, the longer we live and the more experiences we have with God and the more times he proves himself and shows himself to us, then we have more things to add to our list of all that God is capable of. And it just grows our faith more and more all the time. This is one reason that God told the people to set up memorials. You know, in the Old Testament, he would tell the people, set up a memorial here. And when you look at this thing that you've set up, then you will remember what I did in this place. And it will give you confidence. When your children ask, what are those stones sitting there for? You say, well, that's a memorial to God because at this place, such and such happened. God did whatever it was that he did in that place. So God tells us that we don't need to forget the things that he's done for us because they will give us confidence and faith in him. And then it's also why he tells us to witness. That is so important because when we witness to others, then we are telling them how God has worked in our life and then it grows their faith. So if they already have experiences with God, then they can add our experiences also. And that just reminds them of all the things that he's done. And if they have no experiences with him, they can see what God is capable of when we tell what he's done in our lives. And then their faith will grow and so will ours because they're going to see the power and the love that God has for his people. And it's going to help them to trust him more. So praise him for all your answered prayers. Trust him to be on your side and know that he has the power to work in your life. Okay, so we're going to talk now about this part where he says, if you refuse to let my firstborn son go, then I will kill your firstborn son. 
So notice the difference between God's chosen people, the people that he calls his children, and then those that are not. God was for his people, right? And he was against Pharaoh. And he says, if Pharaoh refuses his firstborn, then God will kill Pharaoh's firstborn. And this just tells us that God is for his children. He loves and he cares for his people. I want you to listen to this verse in Romans 8, 31 through 39. It's such an encouraging verse and it lets us know all of the things that God does for his people how much he cares about us. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who could be against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for all of us. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us. So who shall separate us from the love of God? Should tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present or things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God loves us and he is for us and there's nothing that can separate us. And through him, we are more than conquerors. That's how much he loves his people. But as much as he loves his people and as much as he was willing to kill Pharaoh's firstborn, similarly, we know that Jesus is God's only begotten son and anyone that refuses him, God will kill that person's soul and body. We are not to refuse Jesus. The Jews did refuse Jesus, and that's why God extended his fatherhood to all the rest of the people. Listen to John three fifteen through 18. It says, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him isn't condemned, but he who doesn't believe is condemned already because he hasn't believed in the name of the only begotten son. So we condemn ourselves when we refuse him, but we are able to become his children whenever we accept his only begotten son, Jesus. So knowing this, it should inspire us in two ways. First, we should want to be children of God. That should be our ultimate goal. We have to believe in Jesus, his son, as our savior and confess him as our Lord in order to be his child. That's what it means to be a Christian. That word Christian is used flippantly now. It's used to say, hey, I'm somebody that believes in Jesus or whatever. But the technical meaning of that word means Christ follower. So we don't just believe that he exists. We believe him unto following him. If we make God the Lord of our life, the boss of our life, then we will follow Jesus. It's not just a head knowledge. When we believe something, we believe it enough to act on it. 
That's what that kind of belief is. If we say that we believe that an airplane can stay in the sky and not fall, but then we won't get on the airplane, that proves we don't believe it too much. If we're so afraid that the plane can't hold us in the air, then we won't get on it. But if we believe that it can hold us up, then we will get on. It's that kind of belief, okay? The belief that causes us to follow. Not only to believe that Jesus exists, but to follow him. Belief unto action. So that should be our first thing. We should be Christians. Christ followers. Allowing God to be Lord of our life. Confessing Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But in so doing, we should also be like God, wishing that no other person will be in opposition to him. That's our other thing that it should inspire us to do. We should not want anyone else to be enemies of God and suffer his condemnation. And so we should desire that all come to the saving grace of the Lord. Let me read you 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So repentance is a complete change of direction. We were first going towards our sin, doing those things, and when we repent, we turn completely away from sin. We turn our back on it. On whatever that sin is, we say we are done with that and we are going in the opposite direction of that sin towards God. That's repentance. And so this verse says, God is not willing that any man should die eternally, but that all should repent and turn away from their sins. Because whenever we are not believing in God, we are heading towards our sin, which is taking us straight to hell. But when we repent from that direction and we turn to God, then we are his children when we go the right direction, the direction of the Lord. But how do we bring these people to this repentance if we don't tell them, if they don't know about God? Listen to this verse in Romans 10, 9 through 17. This is telling us what it means to be a Christian. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. If we believe enough to say it and act on it, then we will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. So we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouths. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call on him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall you call on him that you haven't believed in? And how do you believe in him when you haven't heard about him? And how shall you hear if there's no preacher? And how shall there be a preacher unless someone sends him? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel of peace who bring glad tidings of good things, for they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And so faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes from the word of God. So how does a person believe in him if no one tells him about that person? That's our job. 
And it says we're supposed to tell them the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. That's what that word means, good news. So what is the good news? The good news is Jesus is our Savior. Now, I have to tell you that a lot of religions now are saying, don't tell people about their sin. That's upsetting. That's bad. We don't tell people the bad things. We only tell them the good things. So tell them about Jesus. Just tell them the good things about Jesus. Well, that's great. Yes, we do need to tell them about the good things of Jesus. But how do they know the good unless they know the bad? If we don't tell people, hey, you're a sinner, then you don't know you need a savior. The way that this is presented is, hey, we all do wrong things and that condemns us and we're headed in the wrong direction. But guess what? There's good news. The good news is there is someone to save us from that. There is someone that can pay the penalty for our sins so that we do not have to pay it. How is Jesus good news if we don't know the bad? If we don't know that we need a Savior, then how is it good news that we have one? Don't let yourself fall into that trap. That's a lie about not telling people about their sins. We can do it in a gracious way because we're all sinners. So no need to say, oh, you're a horrible person. We just need to tell them that they are condemned by their sins. They're heading in the wrong direction, but there's good news. Someone can save you from that. That verse that we just read was quoting a passage from Isaiah 52, 7. I want to read you this one now. It says, how beautiful Upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. That's the good news. If we don't tell people the good news, then they're not going to know it. So we have to witness to others about God, the Father and Jesus, the Son and the Holy Spirit that enables us. We have to live our lives as a witness to him so others can see him in us so that they know all the things that Jesus has done for us. We have to tell them those things to, like we said before, grow their faith, make them strong in the Lord, make them see why they need him, see all of his benefits, right? Pray for each person that doesn't know him. When we believe and we tell others, then it grows our faith and it grows theirs. Because God wants a relationship with each and every one of us. That is his desire. Israel was his firstborn, but now all believers can be called children of God. Listen to John 1, 12. So wonderful that we can all be called his children now. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those that believed in his name. We have the right to be his children And all we have to do is just believe in him. Then we are able to become his children. His children, his chosen children, they rejected Jesus. And so he gives all of us now the opportunity to believe in his son. That's what it means to be born again. Have you heard that term born again? Listen to what Jesus told Nicodemus about being born again. He explains it to him here. This is John 3, 1 through 8. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that's come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
So he's professing his faith in Jesus right here. He is saying, I believe in you. And so Jesus answers him and says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. So he says, that's great. You believe in me. You see that I'm the teacher, but I need you to see that I'm the son of God. So you need to be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born again? And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So don't marvel at what I said to you about being born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. That is the way that it is with those that are born of the Spirit. So he's trying to explain the Spirit to him. And he says, I don't need you to do these tangible things. I need you to do the Spirit things, the things that no one can see. See the effects of it, but you don't see it's coming and going, right? And so what this is saying is that we are all first born of the flesh, having an earthly father. We all have an earthly father. We're born to these people here on this earth, and we have an earthly father. But if we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then we are born again of the Spirit, and that gives us the right to be called children of the Heavenly Father. So now we're not just born of the flesh having an earthly father, but we're born of the Spirit having a Heavenly Father. That's being born again. So our lesson today is that we need to become children of God, grow in our faith, have experiences with him, have a relationship with him that we may know him more as his children and then gather brothers and sisters, right? Witness to others, pray for them, tell others the gospel, the good news. Basically, the whole message here today is be a Christian, a Christ follower, someone that professes Jesus as our Lord and Savior and follows him. And then be a witness to others. Tell them the gospel. Tell them the good news. Let them know all the things that God has done for you so that they will come to that repentance, so that they can change their direction, stop heading in the direction of hell towards their sin, and turn the direction towards God into eternal life. Okay? That's the message today. We do not want to be like Pharaoh as his enemy. We want to be like the children of Israel, being his children that he fights for. Because if he is going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn child just because Pharaoh rejected his children, then we don't want to reject his children. And not only that, we want to be one of those children. We will talk next week about if this has given Moses confidence to go to Pharaoh and what happens when he gets there. So make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss that episode. And then focus on these things that we talked about today, being a Christian, preaching the gospel. Again, if you have any questions, any thoughts on any of these things, please email me. My email is Courtney at LiveThroughJesus.com. You can also leave comments wherever you're listening. People can reply to those. You can get answers from people other than me in that way. Or you can just speak to others who might want to read those things if you have some insight that I didn't express here. 
And then if you want this study, I'll give it to you completely free, all the past ones of Exodus that I don't have on. And the next one that we'll be doing next week, I'll send that to you if you want it, if you'll just email me and let me know that. Then I'll email you the lesson for free since I don't have it online where you can buy it. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for working through hard teachings. It's wonderful that we have the right to be called children of God. So make sure that you're his child and gather brothers and sisters for his kingdom. All right. Thanks. Have a good day. Mm -hmm.